What's up, gang? Thanks for listening to the Undiplomatic Podcast, the show with undiplomatic takes about the foreign policy scene. I'm your host, Van Jackson. My guest today, I'm a big fan. In addition to being a professor of history at Georgetown University, he's an emeritus co-editor of Descent Magazine. Descent, I don't know if you can see this t-shirt. He was once a member of SDS, Students for a Democratic Society. Uh, he's won an armful of awards and fellowships over the years. And he's written a bunch of books, good books, on American labor history, the progressive movement, the peace movement, uh, and for, for my money, the seminal book on American populism called The Populist Persuasion. Incidentally, we're not probably not going to talk about that book today, but it kind of anticipated somebody like Trump coming into the presidency way before it actually happened. My guest's latest book is called What It Took to Win, A History of the Democratic Party. And on top of all of this, he's got this uh, new essay in dissent called Reject the Left-Right Alliance Against Ukraine, which kind of prompted this episode. My guest is the legendary Michael Kazin. Dude, it's such an honor. Thanks for coming on the show. How are you? Uh, great. It's great to be here, Van. Thank you for asking me. So this show's audience skews um, quite young. And a lot of listeners and viewers would have had only a very thin understanding uh, of the historical new left that started forming, I guess, in the, like the late 1950s. You've you've lived part of that era. You've written about it as part of what it took to win the book, right? You know it better than most. Uh, it would be really valuable if you could kind of prime this whole conversation with your version of, you know, how the new left came to be and how it's differed from the old left or the labor left. Sure. Well, one book I wrote you didn't mention, which is fine, is called American Dreamers, How the Left oh, Changed yes. the Nation, which is that's the one the one time um, that I well, I do some Democratic Party book, too. But, you know, uh, historians aren't supposed to really write about themselves. You know, it's supposed to be the past. But uh, I do in the chapter on the 60s and the new left in that in that uh, book, talk a little bit about my own involvement. So uh, the new left was called new uh, rather than just next, because um it was uh, its primary issues uh, were not labor, were not class, which was the primary issue, the primary problematic for the old left. Mm -hmm. Primary issues were racial inequality and American imperialism, in specific the war in Vietnam, though there are other aspects of American imperialism that were very important to us uh, as well. Uh, and also what was also new about it was the older lefts uh, had been not uh, entirely made up of uh, working class people, small business people, earlier small farmers, but primarily they had been. Whereas the uh, the new left was most active uh, on campuses at first, at least. Um, uh, and of course, uh, the black left allied with uh, their college students, high school students aligned with uh, ordinary people, uh, sharecroppers, tenant farmers, factory workers and others. But the new left was the most prominent part of the new left were um, students were young people. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes had dropped out of college and hanging out in college towns like Ann Arbor, Michigan, and Cambridge, Massachusetts, and Berkeley, famously California. But um, it was really a, a young left, and also a left that, for whom class uh, was an issue, but it was an issue as reflected through anti-imperialism and racial politics. Man, that's a great start. You know, SDS. Students for a Democratic Society, it figures prominently in every history of the new left I've seen. You were a member, you know, from what I've gleaned about you, you have this fascinating background 
how did you end up part of the new left and specifically SDS? Well, um, I came from a liberal Jewish background. My father and mother were both sympathetic to the old left, though they were never members of the Communist Party or the Socialist Party. Uh, my mother, uh, on spring vacation in, in college in 1936, went to Moscow. Oh, wow. Uh, which was not the usual spring break at the time. Uh, she was uh, 19. She went with a couple of friends, but uh, obviously had enough money to go <laughs> to uh, the other thing. Um, my father was one of the so-called New York intellectuals Alfred named Alfred Case, yeah. and he was uh, he was a uh, uh, important literary critic. Uh, uh, but he was very much became a Cold War liberal after being somewhat sympathetic to the left uh, in the 1930s. Um, anyway, uh, for, with that background, a lot of people with that background moved farther left, moved broke with with our parents' politics, which was very much New Deal uh, liberal politics. Uh, and, you know, supportive of the Cold War, but not gung-ho supportive of it, but thinking there was no alternative but uh, to side with the United States against the Soviet Union and its allies. And what was, you know, important to me, first of all, was the, the Black Freedom Movement. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to go to Selma in 1965, but my mother said, too dangerous, you can't go. And, you know, I was a good boy. I, I, I didn't want to go anywhere. My mother didn't want me to go until later on, of course. <laughs> um, and, then, and then the War of Vietnam really was what, um, sort of broke my liberal heart, if you will, uh, converted me from being a liberal Democrat to being a radical. Hmm. Um, and and uh, I went to every demonstration, every anti-war demonstration I could I could go to. I lived in a suburb of New York City, and that meant I could just go to Washington or go across the river to New York. I went to teach-ins. And, and then gradually, when I went to college, I started college in 1966 uh, at Harvard. Um, I I gradually dropped my uh, liberal democratic uh, affiliations and joined SDS and was involved in taking over a campus building to protest RTC chapter on campus and to try to set up a black studies department. And, and then for short, luckily short time, I joined Weatherman, uh, which was, as some of your viewers, uh, listeners know, a sort of would-be, you know, white terrorist yeah, that's group. that's pretty radical. Uh, which... Um, <laughs> Uh, luckily, I, I left uh, without, you know, uh, breaking the law and without going underground. I left actually to go to Cuba <laughs> on a group called a group called the Venceremos Brigade, uh, which was uh, American radicals breaking the blockade, uh, helping the Cubans on this historic uh, uh, sugar harvest in 1970, which ended up being a disaster. But that's a different a different matter. So anyway, that's a very short oh my God. Uh, um... profile of me. My time as a would be revolutionary. Jeez, that's that's more radical than uh, I had understood. Were you going to school this whole time? You became an academic and a prominent uh, I, one. I, like... I started college in '66, and then I um, I dropped out uh, to join Weatherman in uh, uh, in '69. Holy! Shit. And then and then I went back. You know, after I got out of the draft, uh, I went back in '72 and finished. I had one more semester to go, so I finally graduated a couple of years late. And then. Were you done with like SDS and the weathermen and everything? And then you go into a PhD. It just seems like balancing um, like radical activism and the kind of sit your ass in the chair and write it, like those things are hard to mesh together. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I mean, uh, again, I don't know how much you want to talk about the 60s, but uh, really um, the period between 1969 and 19. Uh, 73, when I started grad school, uh, was a period when the new left pretty much fractures. And and some of the fragments which come out of it become very strong. The radical feminist mm -hmm. movement, LGBT 
Q movement, that wasn't called that at the time, environmental movement. My, my old friend who unfortunately passed away last year, Todd Gitlin, mm. famous uh, new left, just said, so the new left fragmented, but the fragments were doing pretty well. And uh, I think in the 70s, that's that's certainly true. But but there's no longer. And of course, the U.S. under Nixon begins to, you know, pull American troops out of Vietnam and, of course, increase the bombing mm-hmm. and, and increase support to the South Vietnamese government. But really, by the early 1970s, uh, there's no longer a united new left. Uh, and uh, the black movement was fra- was fragmenting in many ways as well. Um, so. Uh, I figured I'd do something to make a living. So I'd always like to study history. And so I started, I was in Portland, Oregon at the time, editing a left-wing newspaper. And I decided to try graduate school and ended up, I liked it. And I, I'd always liked studying history and writing about history when I was a student. So uh, here we are 50 years later. That's fascinating. We're, this conversation is like intended to be actually quite wide ranging. Um, and so this is good setup. So your book, the new one, what it took to win uh, it's this history of the Democratic Party. There's there's a sociologist, Stephanie Mudge, a few others where, who have written about how the Democrats only became the party of, of labor basically in the 1930s. And if that's the case, then what is the through line that you see connecting pre-30s and post-30s? Or do you, mm-hmm. do you even agree with that characterization? I mean, Well, yes and no. Um, it's only the 30s that labor becomes an important part of the Democratic Party and, and becomes essential, I think, to Democratic victories in industrial states, especially. Uh, and as we know, the decline of the labor movement has has both made it easier for you know neoliberal ideas to be powerful in the Democratic Party uh, and also for you know Democrats to lose support from a lot of working class people, especially white working class people who, when unions were strong, used to vote for Democrats for yeah. the most part. Um, anyway, but I argue in the book that even though the labor movement uh, was not connected um, closely to the uh, to, to the Democratic Party until the 1930s, um, there was, I think, a strand which even reaches from Andrew Jackson in the 1820s and 30s, uh, which was really the the first time there was a mass Democratic Party. Um, about 200 years ago, it gets formed. Uh, you know, Jackson is famously a populist with a small p yeah. and appeals to the interests of ordinary white workers and obviously ordinary white small farmers in many parts of the country, as well as slaveholders, you know, in the South, of which he was one. Um, but he runs against the money power, the first bank, the second bank of the United States. Uh, he uh, and Democrats in general are big supporters of of, of immigrants, especially uh, Irish uh, and German immigrants who are coming from, you know, very poor backgrounds, of course, to the United States back there in the 1840s and 50s. Mm. So there was a there was a kind of a through line from that sort of populist uh, support for working people, white working people, let me underline that yeah, again, yeah, yeah. <laughs> very, very specifically, to, you know, the kind of rhetoric and then finally policies that Democrats uh, do follow in the 1930s. Uh, but even there, you know, American Federation of Labor, which was the major labor federation um, in the uh, end of the 19th century, um, first 25, 30 decades of the, uh, the 20th century, uh, did back Democrats more than it did Republicans. In 1908, for the first time, the FFL uh, supports a Democrat for president, William Jennings Bryan, I yeah. also wrote a biography about. And uh, and from then on, really from 1908 to 1920, they always support uh, Democrats for president. And, and the Democrats uh, under Wilson uh, set up the Department of Labor as a cabinet office for the first time. Uh, they passed the uh, eight-hour day for railroad workers, the first uh, eight-hour day for private 
sector workers in American history. So, you know, for all we can say, and it's certainly right that the Democratic Party was a was a white supremacist party. Uh, when it came to white workers, you know, uh, Democrats uh, tended to be supportive, sometimes rhetorically, sometimes with actual policies. So, hmm. um, you know, I, I think that's 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 the through line. I call it moral capitalism in the book, not because uh, I agree capitalism in itself is moral, but I think Democrats have rhetorically and sometimes in policy throughout their history, uh, very often, not always, but very often try to um, set forth, you know, a, uh, a program, um, a message, if you will, that that uh, does say capitalism in theory is a good system, but it needs to be one that can help, you know, ordinary people more. It can become a more of a moral system, uh, which is a term I borrow from my friend Liz Cohen, who's a, a wonderful biographer, a wonderful historian of uh, 20th century uh, politics and labor. She wrote a great book called Making a New Deal, where she used the term moral capitalism to say what, what, what most workers want in the 30s was not obviously socialism. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it was uh, a, a different kind of capitalism, yeah. a capitalism that really would be would be on their side as much as that's possible. So a sensibility that tries to get a better deal for folks, but largely within capitalism or affirming it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you can call it American version of social democracy. It's a very weak social democracy yeah. compared to, compared to uh, you know, New Zealand, perhaps, yeah. or uh, you know, Scandinavia. But but nevertheless, you know, it's um, it has a social democratic tinge, you might say. Mm-hmm. In the book, you you do a good job of not having a, a socialist blind spot, which makes sense given your you know, the way you see over all of this. Um, and you you mentioned the upswell of like uh, Democratic Socialists of America, DSA, since 2016, 2018. Which I'm a, mem- I'm a member, so yeah. yeah. <laughs> and there's polls that show, uh, that you know of, I'm sure, or actually I think you mentioned it in the book, that show socialism is like fairly popular among Gen Z in ways that it, it just wasn't when I was growing up in the unipolar moment or whatever. You know, what do you think uh, about DSA and the Working Families Party in relation to Democrats? My sense from the book is you don't want a third party split per se, but they should be allies. I mean, tell me, if, what, do you, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think, look, I think since uh, I think the leftward, the, the growth of the left within the Democratic Party, I think, really begins in many ways with the Great Recession, you know, mm-hmm. um, 2008, 2009. I mean, a lot of people on the left, I know, thought Obama was going to be, you know, the way Bernie yes, <laughs> uh, same. became. Of course, yeah. but he wasn't, but that was an illusion. But but nevertheless, there was tremendous enthusiasm mm-hmm. on the left. And, I mean, every every leftist I knew, you know, supported supported Obama, uh, which was the first time since the 1930s that the left has supported a Democrat, like uniformly, pretty much. Not hmm. some some Trotskyists didn't, but, you know, generally there was a huge support for him. Um, yeah. And um, and out of that, partly DSA didn't grow at first, but I think the idea, especially among young people, not just young people, that that a lot more was possible, uh, but that the, that the Democratic Party could be transformed. You could enter the Democratic Party or or increase your activism in the Democratic Party if you're already in it, um, and maybe make some gains. And that progressive caucus in the House begins mm-hmm. to grow. Some more left-leaning people in labor, you know, get closer close to the party, uh, like Bill Fletcher, who's a longtime uh, socialist in the labor movement. Uh, and then, of course, Bernie's campaign uh, sort of reveals uh, this 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 trend. I think uh, in 2016, the very fact that he runs as a Democrat, even though he doesn't join the party, but he runs as a Democrat, as you know, uh, is huge. It's probably the most important thing that the electoral left has done since I don't know <laughs> Eugene Debs' last campaign. Yeah. I don't know. Um, 
But uh, that's really so important because that, of course, makes you know, it, 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 it puts the word socialism out there, mm-hmm. you know, and, and because people say, well, if Bernie Sanders is a socialist, he makes sense. Then maybe, you know, it's not such a bad uh, thing after all. And of course, as you know, Bernie Sanders called himself a socialist, but he's really a social yeah, democrat. Yeah. I mean, he, uh, he's, he's given a couple speeches uh, at Georgetown University where I teach about what does socialism mean to me? And he, each time he uh, he mentions uh, Franklin Roosevelt, the Great Society, Martin Luther King mm-hmm. Jr. You know, if what they were doing or attacked the socialism, then that's that's great. That's what socialism should mean. So he's not he's a moral capitalist in that sense. I mean, he's not calling for you know doing uh, for the uh, the state taking over the means of production. You know, yeah. um, he's calling for he's calling for a welfare state and more corporate regulation and higher taxes on the rich. You know, sort of his, his things historically that the um, the social democrats uh, have done in this country, um, and I think uh, most people in DSA, you know, uh, if you scratch them, you know, really that's all they really expect to happen. So that's a long answer to your question, but I think that DSA has served a really good role of getting people involved in politics, mm-hmm. uh, uh, who or, and and, ta- and talking about what socialism means. Uh, but I think the the fact that uh, there are more and more DSA members. Uh, and those sympathetic to it who are running for elections, sometimes winning, of course, in very blue states and very blue areas, but they're winning as Democrats. And I think a third party, you know, I can talk forever about the hazards of third parties. You know, I think third parties can be useful when the two major parties are just not listening to, you know, what, quote, quote, the people want and need. I think the Democrats, you know, have moved farther to the left than any time, um, you know, arguably since 1972, George McGovern's campaign. And hmm. And uh, there is space for progressives to uh, to have influence in the Democratic Party. They already do have influence in the Democratic Party. So uh, I think uh, that's all to the good. Yeah, I, I didn't plan to ask you this, but the way you were characterizing Bernie and the way that a lot of like DSA people talk about Bernie, which uh, I think imputes a lot that's not there necessarily. Do, how do you think about Elizabeth Warren in relation to Bernie? Like, I... I, to be on the cards on the table, like I, I worked for Warren's campaign in 2020, but I was also a, a Bernie guy, you know, and I, I'm I'm part of his larger network even right now. So like I don't see these two as adversarial at all. Um, I thought they were on a pretty similar wavelength, but in 2020, their their I don't know their clients or whatever were at each other's throats. What what do you think of them? Well, of course, they're politicians. They both wanted to win. Mm. <laughs> That's how the game is played, yeah. right? You know, it's, oh, we love each other. And by the way, you know, vote for me, not the yeah. other guy, you know, or the, or the gal, you know. Um, well, you know, I think during the 2020 campaign, she said, I'm a capitalist, which is weird because, you know, she's not actually, <laughs> does not own a business as far as I know. But, um, you know, Biden says the same thing. It's a strange use yeah. of words. But anyway, she said the market system, you know, works can work pretty well if we, ma- if we make it work really mm-hmm. well, I think. Uh, so in that sense, I think, you know, her differences with Bernie are very small ones, I think. I, I supported her, not because I liked her politics more, because, but I thought that someone who called himself a socialist could not be elected president uh, hmm. in, in the United States without a much larger socialist movement. So I was just being practical about it. But but if I thought he could have won, I, I would have supported him, uh, probably. Okay. But, uh, you know, I don't think they, they differ that much. I mean, I, I, I'm sure there's some issue in which they've disagreed, but I, I don't know what it is. It's pretty, yeah, kind of stylized. Okay. I wanted to get your thoughts on foreign policy overall, uh, but then the trigger for this episode was really that dissent piece you had uh, called Mm -hmm. Reject the Left-Right Alliance Against Ukraine. 
I, th I think I told you when we were setting this up, like I was just kind of head nodding as I was reading through it. And that's usually a good sign. Can you uh, give an overview of your argument in that piece? And then maybe what, sure. what drove you to write it? Sure. Well, I, I decided to write it because I was alarmed that uh, people I knew on the left, some of DSA, but mostly um, uh, other folks I, you know, I follow on social media uh, for no good reason. Uh, were basically saying things sound a lot like uh, things that Tucker Carlson was saying or Donald Trump was saying, <laughs> you know, that, that we have no business there. You know, uh, it was NATO's fault. We shouldn't have, uh, NATO shouldn't have expanded. Um, they weren't actually saying, oh, rah, 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 you know, Vladimir Putin. But but they were saying um, that, you know, this is, this is you know, all the U.S.'s fault, basically, uh, that, that Putin sort of had no choice. You know, uh, he was encircled and so forth. Uh, and I thought that was, you know, uh, not to put too fine a point on it, you know, immoral. Because to me, uh, whatever you think of the larger context, and we can talk about that, and that matters, of course, um, what's happening there seems quite uh, uh, basic uh, mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and simple, uh, in, you know, in the sense of, you know, who's, who's fighting, you know, um, a, an, imperialist, an, imperialist, an imperialist country, at least a formerly imperialist country, which would like to have its empire back, uh, invaded a sovereign nation whose people do not want to be taken over by that imperialist country. I mean, that to me is, is the basic reality of what's going on there. And um, you can say other things about it, but you have to acknowledge that. And if you acknowledge that, then I think, uh, and this is what's of course, controversial on the left, uh, then you have to say, well, maybe the United States should help Ukrainians win. Uh, with military uh, support, because if without the military support from the U.S. and its allies, the Ukrainians will lose. I mean, uh, right yeah, now it's a stalemate, uh, but but that's that's just obvious, you know, to everybody. Right? Uh, should be obvious to those who oppose uh, U.S. military as well. Um, uh, Putin is not going to say, "Okay, NATO is staying out." Ah, I'll pull back. <laughs> that's not going to happen. Uh, that's why I wrote the piece. I wanted to sort of. To me, this is a little bit like uh, the America First. Uh, movement, uh, 1940, 1941, um, which if your listeners don't know, was a pretty large movement, um, which united some people on the left, like Norman Thomas, uh, with people on the right, like Charles Lindbergh, uh, uh, and uh, Gerald Ford, when he was a college student at the University of Michigan, huh. uh, he's saying, he's saying this war that's going on in Europe is not something the U.S. should should uh, be part of, you know, all those Europeans are always fighting with each other, we don't want to be part of that, and and then Pearl Harbor happens, and oh, guess guess maybe uh, we're at war. So the different and this, the similarity there, of course. I don't. Putin is not Hitler. I am not saying that, but I am saying that uh, I think there are certain times when, if you're a leftist, you have to take a stand to support people who um, are being invaded, who did not ask to be invaded, uh, and to support those who are supporting them. Uh, and we can talk about the difficulties. We can talk about what's going to happen to the war. We can talk about you know, American militarism uh, and all that. But uh, I think important to acknowledge, you know, that basic fact about this war. And yeah, there's I'm, an, there's an Occam's the razor quality to this specific case. <laughs> it's very straightforward. The specifics matter. Actually, the specifics matter. You know, I quote, I quote a, a Ukrainian Democratic Socialist uh, who I just found on the Internet. Her name is uh, Alona Lysheva. Um and uh, she basically says, look, let's let's analyze. Leftists should analyze what's happening you know, in every specific incident. You know, we shouldn't act as, oh, what's really going on here is a great power rivalry. Well, yeah, that's going on, too. But, you know, there are people involved here. 
who have lives who are those lives are being disrupted and they're being killed and and uh you know and uh, they are uh they're right to fight back yeah yeah you can't just ignore the concrete a couple episodes ago we we sort of covered this whole rage against the war machine protest and that uh-huh. was in your piece that was kind of like the news peg that was right. uh, indexed against so that protest's been going on for a few years it attracts this year especially this like very motley crew kind of america firsty uh in a sense like you were saying because there, there are some pacifist and anti-war activists there but there are there were like actual named neo-fascists there there were a bunch of libertarians the politicians who showed up were all of like a very controversial variety. And then the the weird thing about this, which I think you mentioned in the piece too, is that there were overt, explicit, pro-Russia, pro-Putin flags and propagandists there, which I don't know that that was the case in years past. I, I haven't followed it in years past, but like that is disconcerting, like how you're aligned with like, um, and then you describe in that context, you talk about like, uh, some Green Party people, Chris Hedges, as like literally embracing an alternate reality. They're not perceiving the basic situation as it is, where Putin has been this naked aggressor acting as an imperialist. What do you attribute this like lack of perceiving reality to? A couple things. First, I think some people are really pacifists uh, or think that military intervention is always wrong. Uh, I think Hedges probably hedges on believing that. Um, but there's also, I think, a, a, a sense coming out of um, the 1960s, actually, uh, which that if the U.S. if U.S. power is used anywhere, it's always evil. It's always a mistake. U.S. power should never be used anywhere, can, can never be used for good because U.S. is imperialist power. And mm-hmm. it's just um, oxymoron that imperial power, you know, can be a good thing. Um, and I think, again, one has to look at specifics, you know, I remember way back in the 90s, I was at some conference and I had a debate with Ramsey Clark, um, who uh, many listeners probably don't know. He was a liberal Democrat. He was uh, uh, attorney general for a while and then the Johnson. But then he moved far to the left. And and we were arguing about uh, what it would have taken to stop the genocide in, in Rwanda in the mid 1990s, which I hope your uh, people listeners know what happened there. You know, hundreds <laughs> of thousands of people genocide, were wiped out yeah. uh, by one uh, group, one ethnic group in Rwanda against another one. And and I said, I think I would have been happy if if uh, Bill Clinton had sent in the Marines, you know, to Rwanda. And Clark and Clark went went apoplectic, you know, he said, send in the Marines, just like Vietnam, just like the Dominican Republic. And I said, you know, there was a genocide happening there. And if we could have stopped the genocide, I would have been happy <laughs> to send in the Marines, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, I think there's a sense on the left uh and it's, it's usually right, by the way, <laughs> that U.S. power is usually not used in a good cause. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes for all kinds of reasons, it can be, you know, uh, and and we should, again, again, look at the specifics there. Uh, that's not to say we shouldn't have a smaller military. It's not to say U.S. has been imperial power throughout its its history, beginning, mm-hmm. of course, with massacring Native Americans uh, in the you know 17th century yeah. when, before there was the United States. But at the same time, there are other powerful countries in the world, like Russia, like China, who have their own interests as well. And and to assume that the United States should just stand around and do nothing while these countries do whatever they feel like doing is, I think, uh, naive and unrealistic. Um, 
Now we can argue what should the U.S. do, and I'm sure mm-hmm. you know you've done that with a lot of your guests. But but uh, to say the U.S. should always do nothing, <laughs> there's always wrong for the U.S. to do not, do anything about problems in the world. Uh, I think is is first of all politically completely unrealistic, and secondly, uh, at times uh, the wrong answer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean it, th- this case too specifically. It seems like if you know about Putin as the face of a kind of transnational neo-fascism, right? Mm-hmm. Whatever position you take on the war has to be connected to an argument about how to oppose this fucking guy, you know? Yep. Like, do you think some people on the left are are just not aware that he's spent the past 10 years being this cultural beacon of the global far right? Like, do they not know that? I think they are afraid of a new Cold War. They're afraid of... You know, um, yeah. this rally around the flag uh, kind of thing. Look, uh, most people, your generation and, and, and uh, of course, my generation and you know, older folks in general, you know, remember 9-11, you know, what happened after 9-11. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the U.S., you know, Americans were justified in being angry at, at Al-Qaeda. But, of course, what happened after that was, you know, a war in Afghanistan, which didn't turn out very well, uh, and a war in Iraq, which, you know, was, of course, uh uh, begun on false pretenses and you know, turned, didn't turn out quite as badly as the war in Afghanistan for U.S. interests, but turned out pretty badly as well. So, so I think that's you know this fear that we're going to again get a you know a strengthened national security state that we're going to get you know that the Cold War is a bad thing, which I agree they are. You know, um, but the question is what you do about that situation. What we do about, for example, the emerging, well, not so emerging, the the uh, the China Russia Russia alliance. You know, mm-hmm. is that something we should be concerned about as leftists. I think we should be concerned about it as people in the world, you know? Uh, yeah. What do we do about that, you know? How do we get to detente? How do we get to peaceful coexistence? Uh, I think that's where we should get to, but but because uh, we're not going to overthrow Putin, and we shouldn't even try, of course. We're obviously not going to overthrow uh, Xi, you know? Um, but, you know, we're faced with, we are in a new Cold War you know, of sorts. In fact, right now, we're kind of in a hot war by proxy in Ukraine, right? Yeah. So. Uh, what do we do about that? Uh, I'm, I don't have all the answers by any means. I'm not, I'm not, you know, a national security guy, a foreign policy person, really. But, but I think it's a question that people on the left should be asking themselves. And and to say, nothing, just don't have a new cold war. Just you know, uh, don't denounce you know China. Don't denounce Putin. That's not uh, an answer. Yeah, you have to have this. My language is like you have to have a theory of least harm in whatever you're advocating. If you're going to be on the left, you have to, if you're a reactionary, maybe you don't care about least harm, but like, that's, if there's anything that glues us together, it's surely, (laughs) you know, you know, the former, can I say one more thing about that? Michael Walzer, who, who um, was co-edited with me for dissent, Dissent, great political theorist, some people know, um, and he's to my right to a certain degree. He could sign, he's called himself a liberal socialist, which is an interesting term, but, um, uh, he says we should all we should all usually listen first to people on our side in these countries, and what they would like. Doesn't mean we have to go along with that, but mm-hmm. I, I like to ask people on the left who don't think we should be helping the Ukrainians. What about these democratic socialists in Ukraine? You know, mm-hmm. uh, I don't think any of them are saying don't do anything. <laughs> what about uh, those people in China and uh, Hong Kong who are on the left who, who? Um, and in Taiwan, which is a pretty, you know, yeah. social democratic country in many ways, yeah. uh, who don't want to be taken over by an authoritarian state, you know, and Hong Kong, they already have been. So, so I think important to look at who people like us are in mm-hmm. these countries. Doesn't mean we have to go along with what they would like us to do, 
uh, as Americans, but we should at least listen to them and and know what they think. Yeah, if you're engaged, like I, I'm obviously very critical of the U.S. national security state, but like if in, indulging in like reverse American exceptionalism kind of forecloses on being able to center others, you know, <laughs> like um, and that's all that also should be something that we try to do. You know, the far right infiltration of the uh, rage against the war machine stuff, it's one small part of this larger pattern of these bizarro left right realignments that are happening on the margins of the left and the right. And, you know, my sense generally has been that red brown alliances are just brown, you know, like what what's the joke? Like, what do you call 10 people sitting down to dinner with one Nazi? 11 Nazis, you know, that's, that's my sort of general view. And I kind of extend it to the Ukraine issue. Like I don't see the upside of making common cause with Tucker Carlson or, you know, people who are against like political and economic democracy. And so I wanted to know, like, is your opposition to a sort of red Brownism or left, right Alliance, is that a general position or is it just, you're expressing that specifically about Ukraine? Good question. I guess it would depend on the issue to an extent, you know. Mm -hmm. um, for example, uh, there's this magazine on the right now called Compact Magazine. Uh, yes, I don't know if that's you, what I had in know, mind. Uh, edited by Sorab Armari, who was uh, the New York the um, New York Post uh, op-ed editor, I think, uh, for a while, and uh, clearly um, was a pro-Trump person at least for a while. But it's an interesting magazine. I mean, there are Marxists who write for it. You know, uh, there are. Um, uh, and it takes a very pro-union position, for example, and anti-corporate position, not just anti-woke corporations, but but uh, very suspicious of, corp of corporate power generally. Well, if people like that uh, support unions, and I think having a more powerful labor movement is essential to having a, a more powerful left in this country, fine. <laughs> um, in the end, if they vote Republican, Republicans are not going to want a more powerful labor movement. Uh, I'm sure of that. So they're going to lose. Um so I, can, I guess it depends on the issue. Uh, I don't really see, I mean, we're so polarized in terms of political parties in this country right now. I don't really see um, people like that in the end supporting Joe Biden against uh, Ron DeSantis or against uh, Donald Trump if he gets a nomination again or any Republican mm. for that matter. Because in the end, what it comes down to it, the issues they really care about are really more the cultural issues, quote, pro-family issues and abortion especially. So, uh, but I think, you know, if if that if people on the right get more friendly to labor unions because they read a magazine like that or hear speeches like that, then by people like that, then that's fine with me. But it's not the same as having an alliance with them. Yeah. I mean, the thing that I'm wary of is trading off, I guess, p pitting political and economic democracy against each other. Like, that's my my concern. Right. Right. Like sacrificing, you know, LGBT rights or, you know, like um, or abortion rights like that would be problematic just so that we can get a higher minimum wage. Like that kind of trade off is is poisonous. Yeah, I, look, I, think. I mean, we got we got to look to doing what say Democrats have just done in Michigan, you know, which is pass protections for LGBT people and repeal the right to work law there. So mm -hmm. um, because, uh, you know, I'm a progressive Democrat as well as a social Democrat. Uh, and to me, the two aren't very different. And. Yeah, I want the Democrats, yeah. <laughs> of course, to keep embracing the cultural issues that Democrats have for the most part embraced over the last 10 years, 20 years, and, and be much stronger, you know, uh, proponent of, 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 uh, of labor unions, of corporate regulation, uh, and obviously environmental regulation as well. So, and, and people on the right are not going to go along 
uh, with us on many of those issues. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the thing is, like, even as I embrace a sort of social democratic core politically, I do not want to live in an illiberal society. And I imagine most people wouldn't, you know? And so, like, right, you exactly. wonder, yeah. And also, I mean, religion comes in here, too. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm not opposed to, you know, obviously people believing in things. And I, I wrote this kind of empathetic biography of William Jennings Bryan, who was a fundamentalist Protestant as well as yeah. a, a progressive uh, politically. Um, but, but at the same time, if you really, as a lot of, as you say, liberals on the right want to do, want to have a, a society which is more explicitly Christian, or at least where uh, there's lots of carve outs for, uh, for, for believers, uh, that's a real mistake, I think. Mm -hmm. you know? um, one of the great things about American society is we don't have established religions. Uh, and and we've, we've pushed off people who wanted to um, have an established religion, whether by that name or some other name. Yeah. I, I, I just finished writing a book about leftist foreign policy. So I've been marinating on this kind of oh, line yeah, of like, reasoning like for you. a while. <laughs> I have some sympathy. This is kind of going back to the Ukraine thing indirectly, but I have sympathy for the view of like a socialist who is committed to demilitarizing the national security state and opposes war on those grounds if they're willing to do something or make an argument about how to fight, you know, fascism in Russia or Ukraine, like a lot of American communists in the thirties, as you, you know, this better than I do, like they went over there to Spain personally to fight Franco, you know, for the most part, they were not lobbying the U S government to invade Spain, but the parts of the left that are against the Biden administration's Ukraine policy, they're not trying to support Ukraine by other means, you know, and, and they're sure as hell not going over there themselves to fight, you know, <laughs> but also like, you know, be the support we're providing Ukraine is not changing U.S. force structure. Like if you provide no military support to Ukraine, you still have a military committed to primacy, right? You know, primacy is indexed against the China threat, not Russia. Primacy drives force structure. Force structure drives the size and shape of the defense budget. So doing nothing about Russia's invasion does not help you restrain the national security state. And like, I don't really know what to do with that, but it, it's, I feel like there's something being missed analytically here in um, opposing doing anything in Russia or doing anything in Ukraine on the grounds that like you're trying to restrain the national security state. Like there's a, there's a missing there's there's an illogic to that to me. I don't know. No, I think you're right. I can't read. I can't wait to read your book. But my, my, by the way, Michael, Michael Walzer wrote a little book called A Foreign Policy for the Left, which you probably oh, I know. read it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, look, I think realistically, again, and I, you know, one of the things that changed since I was a new leftist was I, I think first about what Michael Harrington called the left wing of the possible. So, so what's possible hmm. in terms of of uh, of, our, of our of our military and national security state? Uh, I think. No, probably just chipping around the edges of it is only possible as long as people perceive. And of course, there's people on the politicians want us to keep perceiving that there are these threats, you know. Um, and what do you do about that, that, that perception? Well, I think you try to find ways to minimize uh, the perception of the threat uh, by actually trying to minimize the threat by figuring out what kind of deal can we make with the Chinese? What kind of deal so they don't invade Taiwan? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, what, what kind of you know, deal when this once this war is over, uh, perhaps can we make with with Russia? <clears throat> I don't know what those are, but obviously the the military was 
was decreased, the size was decreased to a degree mm -hmm. uh, after the Cold War ended. Not enough, obviously, uh, but it was uh, to a certain degree. And, you know, it's this is a huge, huge uh, structure, as you know, you know, much better than I do. And and of course, it's not just uh, uh, doesn't just run on the fear Americans have about uh, threats from abroad. Also, it's an economic structure and it, uh, yeah. you know, a lot of people make their money, you know, from it. And and uh, a lot of people. Uh, and the military is a pretty good, if you don't have any good options, join the military is not a bad one, you know, as long as you're not going to, you know, <laughs> get a risk did, of being, yeah. being killed. Yeah. Uh, and I've had students at Georgetown uh, who were in the military uh, who um, actually are leftists, but they are leftists in the military. And of course, they, there's only certain things they can say uh, and do. Um, but, you know, I've had students say, oh, it was terrible, it was stupid to invade Iraq. It was stupid to invade Afghanistan, even. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, they don't have any answers either to this, uh, what you do about it. So, look, I think this is probably the hardest thing for leftists to deal with, this problem of what to do about the military. Because, as I mentioned, uh, you can say, as some people on the left do, including those I'm criti critical of for not supporting Ukraine, let's just talk about, you know, cut the military budget by half, cut it by two thirds, you know, keep saying that over and over and over again. Well, you can say that, but it's not going to get anywhere. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think yeah. you're not anywhere very far unless there's a perception that we don't need this military. And that's what you've got to You have to make that on. case. Yeah. Interesting. OK. What do you th in that context, you know, the socialist DSA, when the International Committee, they, they produce some like weird points of view sometimes on foreign policy. And I think some of that is um, a pathology of like how they reach decisions. But um, <laughs> do you, and, and I know, but then like DSA will issue some press release or something sometimes. Do you reject the line or have caveats or reservations about the slogan, no war, but class war? That's of course a line from like hundred years ago. <laughs> yeah. They used uh, it recently. That, like, that's, that's basically what Lenin said, right? I had to quote yeah. from Lenin, right? During World War One, at the Zimmerwald, you know, meetings or something in 1915 or 16. I don't remember, right? I, uh, I should know this as a historian of the left, but exactly <laughs> what the uh, providence of that line is. It's just is. become but, a cliche, um, though. Like, yeah. yeah. Well, obviously, I don't agree with it in terms of Ukraine. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, I, I'm, I'm trying to think of a war. You know, look, I, I write in my book on World War One, which I thought was a bad, a bad war. Uh, U.S. Mm -hmm. I think should not have, have entered it. Oh yeah, I want to talk to you about yeah, that. The only, in a minute, the only war, the only war that uh, I support unreservedly in retrospect, which is an easy thing to do, support wars in retrospect that the U.S. has fought, um, well, the Civil War on the Union side uh, mm -hmm. and World War II. I'm ambivalent about Korea in some ways, but because uh, of what's happened since then, because South mm -hmm. Korea is such a, a much more humane society and uh, than North Korea, but but that's after the war. So, yeah, so World War II, uh, would people say no no war but class war? I've said, oh, we shouldn't have been in World War II, you know? Uh, yeah. I don't think so. Um, and certainly the communists didn't say that <laughs> uh, once, of course, the Soviet Union was invaded uh, in 1941. Before that, you know, uh, they were more ambivalent. So, um, yeah, I think, again, let's look at the specifics. Uh, part of the problem with wars is that pretty much every country that goes to war says, oh, we're not aggressors. This is a defensive war. You know? Yeah. And uh, I write in my book, War Against War, that the Socialist uh, International, Second International, had a conference in, I think it was Stuttgart in 1907. They debated whether socialists should ever support their country going to war. And they said, no, never, except for defensive wars. Well, lo and behold, <laughs> 1914, when uh, war breaks out, you know, uh, 
between the Serbs and the Austro-Hungarians originally, and then of course it, it blows up. You know, every pretty much every uh, socialist party in in Europe, except for the Italians, uh, supports their their government in war because it's a defensive war, right? You know, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, the U.S. Socialist Party does not go along with that. Uh, um, but to their to their uh, you know, uh, we should, of course, that's one of the better better things that's happened in the history of the American left, uh, morally. But but uh, that's a problem, of course. Uh, wars are usually, look, in 9-11, invasion of Afghanistan was seen as a defensive war as well by yeah. most Americans because Al-Qaeda had attacked us from, Af- from Afghanistan. Yeah, self-defense is self-evidently right <laughs> or justifiable. But then the question yeah. is, well, like, well, how do you know? Okay, so actually, I wanted to put the Ukraine stuff in historical context a bit. And the war against war book that you had, yep. fantastic book. I mean, I, I, it's one of those things like I dog-eared the shit out of it. I underlined it all. Like, I read that thing deeply. And there's no way to read it and then come away thinking that, like, it was smart for the U.S. to enter World War One. And so, like, it was a tragedy. It was a mistake, right? Um, so I wonder if you could reflect a little on World War One as you just started doing, because there's there's a Wilsonian reading of World War One that's quite common, right? There were conservatives who were opposed to the war, as you write in the book, uh, but then anti-imperialists and socialists had their own reasoning. So you know, like, why why was the left opposed to World War One? Why were progressives split on the war? Well, most socialists in this country, of course, anarchists were were opposed to going into the war because they thought it was mm-hmm. an imperialist war. I mean, they agree with Lenin on that. You know, uh, they thought it was. Yeah, well, I mean, yes, <laughs> they, they thought, well, maybe the Germans were more aggressive. They did go into Belgium, of course, and do horrible things. But mm-hmm. but, uh, you know, they could support a war supporting the Tsarist Empire, which was you know, the Tsar was in power till took, you know, just a couple months before the U.S. did declare war uh, in 1917 or the British Empire or the French Empire, of course, on the other side. So. So um, that was their analysis, that this was, uh, they thought, just a war between empires that uh, the U.S. had no right to support, uh, no reason to uh, to support. But there were people on the left, like John Dewey, uh, mm-hmm. like like a minority of American socialists, who said, first of all, the Germans were the aggressors, uh, and they want to set up a uh, uh, authoritarian Europe uh, under their uh, leadership, uh, mm-hmm. even though... Uh, there was this, the, the majority of the Social Democratic Party in Germany did support the war and did until close to the end of the war. So it was not Hitler, certainly. It was a partially democratic country, uh, was uh, Imperial Germany. And also they thought, as a lot of socialists in Europe did, that, well, if the Socialist Party supports the war, maybe that will help embed socialism within uh, the American government to a degree. Uh, that was happening mm-hmm. in, in, in European countries at the time. And maybe Americans would say, well, these socialists, maybe they're not so terrible revolutionaries. Uh, maybe they really want to go along with this great national effort. And uh, this is the way women suffragists argue, for example. Uh, oh. And maybe that'll get some gains for uh, for the Socialist Party. Um, so there was a combination of so supporting Wilson's reasons for going to war and um, opportunist reasons to think maybe the left would get something out of uh, supporting the war. But the Socialist Party did not go along with it. And, and as, as your listeners probably know, you know, uh, uh, Socialists suffered very badly from the war. You know, Eugene Debs uh, was get, got a 10-year jail sentence for giving a speech, <laughs> a yeah. speech uh, in 1918, uh, arguing that the draft was something which uh, should not, you know, Americans shouldn't go along with it. And so newspapers are banned from the mails. And so and the Socialist Party never really recovered. Uh, and then it split in 1919 because a lot of people in the Socialist Party wanted to emulate the Bolsheviks and 
and move towards a, a revolutionary uh, attempt uh, as soon as possible. Yeah, there's a recurring theme on the show where we're highlighting the domestic sort of democratic price that we pay in the terrain of war, which is a difficult thing to reconcile with the fact that like, I'm not a pacifist, we're not pacifists. There's like an anti-war sense, kind of like what you're saying, an anti-war sensibility and that comes in part from understanding the real price that democracy pays when we do things like World War One, but then you, 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 when you're faced with like straight up imperialism by someone else, you know, like you got to do something. You, I mean, we like we have the means to do something, you know. And as you mentioned about about 1930s, the Lincoln Brigade, you know, yeah, there were four thousand yeah. communists or pro-communists. They weren't all members of the party who went to Spain to fight and uh, for the Spanish Republic. But also the left was demanding at the time that uh, Roosevelt, you know, send arms to to Spain, to Republican Spain. Um, and of course, he wasn't going to do that because he he was afraid of losing the Catholic Church. <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, the British and French lefts were demanding the same thing. You know, George Orwell famously went to Spain and uh, he was a, a, you know, democratic socialist. And he uh, and what a great book about it, you know, Amish to Catalonia, yeah. everyone yeah. should read. Um, but they didn't succeed in doing that either. And if they had, who knows whether uh, the Spanish Republic might have survived. Yeah, that's a good point. What, clearly, you see important differences between Russia's war now and World War One. What, 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 especially from, um, you know, a social democratic perspective or whatever, what do you see different there? Every war is different, but like, what is the difference between world war one where we shouldn't have gotten involved in Ukraine where we should? Well, I think Ukraine, as I said before, is a key example of a large, powerful country invading a smaller, less powerful one against the wishes of those people. Um, and, uh, world war one, um, certainly, Germany invading Belgium was was terrible. Uh, mm -hmm. The rationale was they wanted to get to France <laughs> before <laughs> the Russians invaded them. You know, there's a thing called yeah, the, yeah. Uh, you know, the 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 what was it called the uh, Schlieffen Plan. You know, which was invade the France first before uh, the Russians invade us from the east. Anyway, yeah. we can do World War One all day, I'm sure. But <laughs> but um, I think there the 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 Russians got involved in the war to support the Serbs and and the Serbs were an expansionist expansionist country uh, uh that's why a serbian terrorist killed you know the archduke and archduchess of yeah uh, of austria hungary so so in other words there were no good guys uh there were some guys who were a little bad a little worse than other guys and i don't know what so would have happened if germans had, had won world war one that's a counterfactual yeah. we can talk about but but post to what's happening now it seems you know this seems again like a clear case i think uh of of uh uh, of, of imperial aggression. Uh, and there it was well complicated. Putin has made no bones about the fact he wants to recreate the Soviet, the Soviet empire, which of course, before that was a czarist empire, you know, yeah. he's not going to invade Kazakhstan, uh, certainly, but Ukraine, of course, the history as, as you know, is, um, uh, uh, much more important to, to Russia, uh, mm -hmm. and say Kazakhstan was, and, you know, it's uh, more important economically, uh, um, so many Ukrainians uh, do speak Russian. Uh, some is their first language, but you know, so, so many Belgians speak French too. Doesn't mean uh, they'd be happy if France invaded Belgium. Yeah, no. I mean, World War One was there. Were, it was empires against empires, and there's a way in which it's like a, a plague on all of your houses. You know, <laughs> um, even though it's like really tragic. But there's and, and also, one course, one big imperialist right now. 
there was a possibility, and we talked about Lenin before, you know, I'm no Leninist, but, but um, the idea that, you know, there were factions of the socialist parties in Europe as well that mm-hmm. opposed going to war. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the SPD and, and Germany split over that um, yeah. and set up an independent socialist uh, party, which people like Kautsky and, and Bernstein uh, supported. And was Luxembourg, of course, uh, uh, helps form the German Communist Party. And and I don't I don't see that now. You know, I don't see there being this sort of group on the left, you know, which has uh, a really good solution to the war in Ukraine other than uh, just U.S. should stay out, you know, which is not a solution for the Ukrainians. Whereas opposing World War One would have been a good solution at the time. You would have stopped the killing. You know, you're not mm. going to stop the killing in, here unless unless uh, um, one side wins. Um yeah, I mean, there was there was an argument then. Eventually, it'll be a negotiation, negotiated settlement, probably. But uh, yeah, in the advocacy now, there's not a clear path forward. That's the alternative. Exactly. Um, it's more. It's just like you say the word diplomacy or something. But it's like, what's the theory of diplomacy? Like how? You know. Yep. Um, interesting. Okay. What What are your thoughts about NATO? It's complicated. You know, and there are there are, I know socialists in Europe who live in NATO member countries, who are basically opposed to NATO as a long term proposition. But, you know, you go to war with the army you've got and there's a there's an immediate issue and NATO's available. So it's like they have no problem with NATO support for Ukraine. You know, again, it's like a complicated thing. How do you th- how do you think about well, yeah, NATO? Again, again, counterfactual would have been great if in 1991, George H.W. Bush, you know, went to uh, Gorbachev and then I guess it was Yeltsin and said, let's make a deal for all time. Let's make a treaty that we'll do away with NATO. Uh, if you cut back your military uh, and we do away with nuclear weapons and, mm-hmm. you know, uh, a, mm-hmm. a wonderful, great, you know, real coexistence, you know, but, you know, that didn't happen. Yeah. And um, and these countries that had been, you know, part of the part of the, the Soviet empire, and I think it's fair to call it that, uh, a lot of them wanted, wanted to join NATO because they wanted to, they knew there was a possibility that uh, they'd be under uh, stress at least from uh, the Russians uh, again. So, uh, do countries have the right to make their own foreign policy? Sovereign countries? Uh, yeah, I think they do. Um, now, did the U.S. you know want them to join NATO? Yeah, that's true as well, right? Uh, so, um, so what do we do in you know 2022 when uh, when the invasion happens, right? Um, at that point, I think you're right. Uh, I, I hate to quote Donald Rumsfeld. <laughs> <laughs> as you did before. But, uh, you know, if you think the Ukrainians have a right to uh, control their own their own territory um, uh, and push back the Russians, uh, then then NATO, you know, makes sense in the long run. Of course, I don't think NATO is a good idea. But then you know, I'm, I'm a peacenik, you know, uh, yeah. but uh, it's the left wing of the possible again. Uh, right, right now, to, to say, you know, NATO should be disbanded is to say, uh, exactly what what uh, Putin would like you know to happen, mm-hmm. um, and of course not just that, but it's also it's like saying you know, we should do away with capitalism right right away <laughs> in the yeah. United States. That's not a politics um, which is going to get you anywhere. So uh, unless you're on the right or or <laughs> or, or some people you mentioned, like uh, some people at at that uh, uh, at Rage that rally, you know, yeah. um, so anti-war machine rally. So. You know, I think, again, uh, it's a long way of saying I, I don't know. Uh, in in the perfect world, of course, we should have no NATO. And if this is over, and if there's some way to get to roll it back, of course, I'm for it. I don't think NATO should be a permanent fixture. 
uh, mm -hmm. in Europe. I don't think there should be military alliances at all. But the question, as always, is what the hell we do about them, how we get rid of them. And yeah. I like to hear from people on the left uh, who have something to say besides don't support NATO. You know, that, that's, yeah. a that's a slogan. It's not a politics. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. You have to kind of deal with the world as it is. Man, okay. You know, we really blew a, a, a moment at the end of the Cold War in hindsight where we, we, the U.S. and the Bush administration for sure at that point, was not in a in a headspace or they they had no horizon of the possible where they could have transcended systems of mutual fear and deterrence and this oh, like right. this this precarious way of security that we think about especially in national security they were not they couldn't envision that but i feel like the rest of the world was like uniquely amenable in that mm -hmm. that moment and we in that sense we kind of fucking blew it yeah look i mean you can't you can't uh, take a cold warrior all of a sudden uh decide uh, change their minds 100 percent. you know yeah yeah um, so or even 50 percent which was was director of the cia you know yeah so uh, i have i have concerns about how hawkish democrats have become uh i spent years in as like a insider cadre like the national security policy arm of the democratic party and some of my friends are still there i've become very alienated from that world uh because i'm a critic of primacy and a liberal primacy is taken for granted among dc democrats because i mean 90 percent of the foreign policy apparatus is like atari democrats and closet republicans and former neocons and that's a very different cadre from like the domestic policy stuff so and what's funny is like Ukraine is one of the bright spots that I see in Biden's foreign policy. But in the main, I'm not I have concerns about the overall project, overall direction of things. Oh, I do. I do, too. I do, too. And I mean, look, that, that I, was what I what are your yeah, what's your uh, thoughts overall? Yeah, you got more answers than I do, I think, man, <laughs> about this, because uh, you've you've been inside there and you, uh, you know, these people. Um, I'm just a, you know, left wing historian out here trying to trying to make sense of what I read about. Um, wow, you're more than that, dude. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, again, as I said before, I mean, I think, uh, you, you, you give, you give me a, a way to talk about, you know, Russia and China right now, uh, and, and climate change too, of course. Uh, mm -hmm. um, and, uh, I, I, I would, I, I think of course, you know, you want to have a, a small national security state and, and people on the left, People and liberals, and whether in the Democratic Party or outside it, who um, who think that this is just a permanent thing, uh, who don't have any strategy for getting out of it. I mean, one of the people I like a lot is Matt Dust. You know, Matt's stuff. He used to be yes, he's a friend. Uh, he used to be Bernie Sanders' foreign policy guy, and I I, yeah. I, I trust his uh, his instincts about these things. Uh, and of course, we haven't even talked about the Middle East. You know, which is a different situation. Yeah, that's a really uh, but, bad. Uh, but you know, I think I think. One question for historians uh, is, and for all of us, is whether the U.S. is in fact a declining empire. And declining empires can decline gracefully, as say the Dutch mm -hmm. did, uh, but then they didn't have, you know, a massive two two trillion dollar a year defense establishment. Yeah. Uh, or they can decline um, in a, a a pretty rough way, the way in some ways the Soviets did, uh, and uh, the French did. Look at Algeria and so forth. So it can be very bloody. Mm -hmm. So. So um, I think in some ways, maybe it's a task of the left to to try to figure out, you know, a politics of of how to talk to Americans about the fact we're a declining empire, that we are an empire and how to 
make sure that transition to being a non-imperial country uh, can happen, you know, uh, without a lot of bloodshed. Again, I, if I had an answer to that, I'd be wagging about it. I don't have an answer to that, but but yeah. uh, I think that that maybe is the task of the left. Um, and and within the Democratic Party as well as outside the Democratic Party, I mean, there are people in the Progressive Caucus. Uh, Sanders himself has talked about some talk about this in, in different ways as well. Um, mm-hmm. I think people should keep doing it. But of course, Sanders, as you know, is, is completely supportive of our uh, support for Ukraine right now. At least uh, I haven't heard him be critical of it. And uh, and so that, I think, is probably his his way of balancing those two. The, the short term politics with, about Ukraine and the longer term politics is probably a good one. Yes, you. it's an extremely good point that our task on some level has to be like thinking about or how we manage or how we talk about even a kind of relative decline or imperial decline. And you got to do that without invoking, you know, things like malaise or leaning too heavily on stuff like that, that alienates people. And one of the things I was hoping is that like Bernie specifically with Matt, you know, we've developed this conception of like a progressive global order Mm -hmm. and redirecting some of that energy toward like, you know, shoring up democracy at home as abroad, you know, not at abroad in lieu of at home, which is kind of the bargain we've had for a while. And like, maybe that's, I I was thinking that maybe like a progressive global order, that kind of vision is a way of managing decline, but in a way that is like a productive force, you know? I think as a a vision, I'm I'm, I'm all with it. But of course we need allies. We need allies in other countries to to support that. And as you know, uh, democracy ain't doing so well in the world at the moment. Um, Yes, (laughs) yes, yes. Michael Kazin, the newest book, What It Took to Win, A History of the Democratic Party. Thanks for coming on the show. This was awesome. Thanks. It was a great conversation, and uh, I look forward to reading your book. Yeah, thank you. All right, take care.